Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. All right, guys, thank you so much for watching the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm sitting here today with Amanda Householder. If you are on TikTok, you've probably seen her video pop up here and there. Um, if you're in any of the Facebook groups for people who grew up within the IFP movement, any support groups, anything like that, um, she's super active there. You've probably seen some content. Um, and she is doing a lot of really good work, hundreds of thousands of views on these videos, um, showcasing the abuse at Circle of Hope which is a reform school. Um, I've been excited to actually get to talk to a lot of people from these schools because it's something that I only heard the positive PR about, you know, growing up. So, um, Amanda, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Can you just tell people who you are and kind of introduce, you know, what you're doing and kind of what your mission is? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, my name is Amanda Householder. Um, my parents do own and operate Circle of Hope Girls Ranch in Humansville, Missouri. Um, my goal right now is to spread awareness to um, these abusive boarding schools because um, my main push was because there is a girl who, um, she, I think she was sent to Circle of Hope in 2007, but um, I do have pictures dated 2006. Okay. Um, but she was sent there and I think she was 15 or 16 and she's been there ever since. Um, she is... Um, disabled and her parents handed co-guardianship co over to my parents and so um I don't know I just started thinking about how like I didn't want to be there after I turned right. 18 and so it just got to me and so I just decided to like try to help spread the word to get her out and in a safe environment Right. So, um, I mean, the, the first time that I ever found you and ever like became aware of who you were and even that Circle of Hope existed was when you shared the first video that you ever shared publicly, which was a, um, and I'll insert it into the episode, but it was uh, basically a, a video where you could just hear 
your dad in the video, you know, telling one of the workers to knock one of the students out. Knock her out. Yes, sir. I mean it. Knock her out. Yes, sir. And that goes for me with the rest of you. If she clenches her fist or she's going to hit you, that's a threat. Knock her out. Yes, sir. You yes, got sir. that, Ashlyn? Yes, sir. And are you being... I watched the video and I was like, what is it? Like, what is this? Like, who, what is this? Who is this? And, you know, I was reading through the comments and like, it didn't take long to see that there's a lot of people who understood exactly the situation you were showing. Um, and yeah, I mean, then going on to TikTok, seeing your stuff there, getting more information about it. Um, it was, it was pretty eye opening. Um, and, and like I said, my, my experience and knowledge of, these kind of schools was growing up, we would have people come in from Agape and say, you know, it's a, it's a really strict school. Um, and you know, but it's for the people that need a strict school. And that was kind of the, and, and like growing up, it was like, Oh, it makes sense. Like I'm not a bad kid, so I would never get sent here, but whoever goes there probably deserves it. You know, that kind of thing. But then doing this show, I start seeing all these stories and I'm like, there's a lot more to this than uh, what we heard growing up. So um, so, so were you, is this as long as you can remember you were involved in this or was it something that as a young kid, your parents started doing or what, what was kind of your introduction to all of this? Um, for as long as I can remember, I was growing up in this situation. I do know stories from what like my parents have told me from like a time we weren't in these and I have seen pictures, but I don't remember. I like, I don't remember living with my grandma, um, I don't remember anything before working in, um, it was called Faith Children's Home in Tampa, Florida in like 1994, I think it was. And so, um, that, those are my, those are my earliest memories are being at that school. Um, was it initially, like, was it initially negative? Was it something where like for a long time you felt like, oh, this is just normal and you didn't, because when you grew up in it, that's always, it's kind of the same conversation I had with um, Benjamin Williams from Pepsiba House, like, he's like, it was normal to me. That's all I knew. So was that how it was for you? Or did you always feel like, this is kind of weird that we do this? No, it was normal. But the thing that, that made it normal for me, looking back at it, is at this place, we had to call all of the staff aunt and uncle. And so those people literally, as a like four-year-old, became my family. Hmm. Um, even to this day, like I have, um, friends that are, are like cousins to me because their parents worked there and, um, we just kept in contact. Um, but it, it's weird because, um, growing up, like being that young there, it was, it was fun. Um, I was still being like, what I, I say I was being abused because my dad went over the top with our spankings and stuff, but from, that was just from birth anyways. But it was different because I had this huge family that like would take care of me when my parents, I, it was just like, I could go hang out with the girls and like hang out with the, the students and not be around my parents around that time. So it was fun. Um, yeah. I don't really remember a bad time except they did have a room that I was not allowed to go into because that was the room they did spank in and obviously if I went in there it would be me getting a spanking next so um I need to stay away from that room um but being so young I the first time I don't remember really a bad time 
Yeah. No. So um, obviously, you know, now, like with all the stuff you're putting out, all the stories, like, you know, I'm seeing stories every single day posted, people sharing their experiences. And so, you know, obviously looking back in retrospect, there's a lot of things that were happening that shouldn't have been happening. Um, yeah. When, when was the time that you first, like, or maybe the first incident where you were like, this is not just a, you know, a place where they're trying to help people. There's something else here that's like not as positive and, you know, maybe is a negative place. Um, I would say agape. Um, but that was because um, when we got to agape, I was 11. And um, when we toured the property, they had this like room that was um, right next to the um, staff bathrooms. And um, actually, the f- which is weird, the female bathroom connected to this room. So like we could go into this room, but this room was all padded and carpeted or not padded. It was just carpeted. So it had like the cheapest carpet you could think of on it. Um, and I remember, um, boys going up there and then coming back and they were, um, bloody. It wasn't just like bruises. They were like bloody. Um, but we knew that as girls, we weren't supposed to be looking at the boys. So like, it wasn't something you could like stare at or like get involved in anything like that. So that's basically when I kind of started realizing that these kids were going through, um, what I was going through at home. So, okay. So noticing that was a little bit weird. So what's the, so a lot of these houses are connected. So that's the weird thing I'm finding out is like, there's as much as the IFB is interconnected, like these homes are also connected in similar ways. So how does this work? So like you're, it's faith children's home in Florida. Then there's connection at Agape. Was it just them transferring and working at different schools before ending up at Circle of Hope or were they connected? Was it like a ministry of Agape? Like how did that work? Well, um, so a lot of the schools are connected because they do send students from like one school to another if like they need to replace a student. Um, A lot of them do move staff and a lot of them like students, like the Hisvespa house, I I butcher that name, I'm so sorry. uh, Lucinda Pennington, she actually went to that school and then she was a staff member at Hope Children's Home when we were there in Tampa, Florida. And so a lot of them are just either students that know of these schools and go to work at these schools or staff that just transfer from school to school because they know of these schools. Lucinda is an interesting character. <laughs> I was watching, uh, I was watching uh, the Dr. Phil, I think everybody was that, that knows anything about this. And you know, I was just watching her and I was like, man, how are you so convinced of the opposite of what everybody else is saying? Um, and, you know, a lot's come out since then of like her actual credentials and things like that and the things that she was touting herself to be. Um, what was your, what was your kind of, you know, did you know her pretty well or I'm just curious because she seems very interesting. So I'm curious that she worked in some of the same places. Um, I wasn't allowed to be around her. So, um, I, my parent, I, it's confusing. Cause, um, at one point I was staying at one of the girls house houses and I don't know if you know, with like in the IFB religion, everything's like conviction. So like one person can watch TV and like the other family doesn't. So I was staying with this one girl and my parents found out we were staying up until like three o'clock in the morning watching TV. And so then they t- made it to where I couldn't, um, hang out with people. 
And well, when Lucinda came, she started enforcing like girls can um, talk to the boys and like girls can wear shorts to the knee, like uh, boy shorts to the knee. And um, well, my dad started talking a lot of stuff about her. Like she's an evil woman. She's this, she's that, she's this, she's that. So that was my opinion on her. I don't know because I did not um, witness her abuse. I do have friends that were on the receiving end of her abuse. Um, but I do have, what I do have to say is like, I found out later after I saw the Dr. Phil episode, well, before that, I wanted to reach out to her a couple of times because I knew that my parents could not stand her. And I wanted yeah. to reach out to her and ask her why, just on my end, trying to um, validate more of my stuff because I, at Hope, went to people about my abuse and I was just abused more. And so I wanted, I was like, well, if she didn't like my parents, I could ask her, her side. Well, then I asked her, I saw that Dr. Phil episode and I was like, no, <laughs> that's not happening. I'm not, because she was like, agreed with everything that happened at the, his FESBA house. And that's what was going on at my parents' house. And so um, I posted that video and um, one of the girls that is really good friends with Lucinda was like, hey, you need to message Lucinda. Like she sees this and she needs, she like needs you to talk to her like now. So I unblocked her <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I asked her for her phone number and I called her and well, um, come to find out she was actually fired from that home because she called CPS on my dad three times because she went my dad do inappropriate things in a room with a girl. And so she was fired from that home. Um, I do say, I do like applaud her for doing that. Cause like no one has ever stood up to my dad before. Um, she said that my dad punched her almost in the face. Like he had her by the neck and, um, her husband had to tackle my dad. <laughs> and so like, I was just, that's the first woman I have ever heard to like stand up against my dad, which was weird after seeing the Dr. Phil episode. Yeah. So. Well, it kind of, I mean, it, it, it gives some validity to her claims of like calling out. I mean, obviously that's, and that's the tricky thing with these houses is what people consider abuse varies so much, yeah. especially within the IFB. Like, you know, like there's people who would say spanking of any kind is, you know, abuse or people who would say like, and like, you know, I don't, I, I've never said on the show exactly where I'm at on all that, but like, I, cause I don't want to, whatever. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't want to offend people. I don't want people who need to hear the rest of that, you know, to, but like, you know, like there's a lot of things that were normal for like my friends and I growing up that like I don't do with my daughter because I feel like there's other ways to communicate than, you know, yeah. corporal punishment and things like that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just weird with these, with these homes because like someone like her doesn't see an issue with this kind of spankings that they were administering there. She didn't see a problem with the dietary things and all of that. But then she does blow the horn on, you know, something like that. It, it's just an interesting, but that's, that's what's hard about all of this is it's, it's, everybody has this weird, these weird moral gray areas that they just don't step into. Well, it was weird because she said that, well, I, like I said, they spanked uh, Faith and um, Hope when they changed the name, they spanked. But she said when she got there, she like told them that she wasn't going to spank and that they were done spanking. And like, my dad was the principal of the school. And I remember him taking girls and boys into his office and him spanking them. But then I remember that ending. So like when I saw that like episode and I don't know, I was just really confused. I was just like, I'm like, I just yeah. don't understand. Um, 
but um yeah when she contacted me she's like I do not agree with what your dad's doing and stuff like that and I was like yeah neither do I obviously <laughs> right um yeah so I mean I, okay so you start realizing so agape you're about how old when you notice that there's you know guys are going up and did you ever find out what that was or or what was going on there at agape with the guys called, coming out it's called a restraining room talking to the guys later it's not a restraining room it was more of a um rough it up room and they would like throw boys around in there um like staff and the the people there or the yeah, guys it would be there like four staff on a guy like that um i know like at hope there was this one guy that my dad and him he was like a 17 year old boy him and my dad would get in like fist fights and like this kid not saying like this kid could like handle himself like he could do run up a wall and like do flips so like it wasn't like he was up against anything that wasn't his match like him and my dad literally would go uh head to head but i think when we got to agave it like um it was different because he had all of these boys because right uh when I got to be like um, 14, there was this kid who, um, he was younger than me, but he was always on the wall. He, I don't remember a time except maybe like once when he got to sit on the no talking table, but he was always on the wall. Um, and he looked up at me off the wall and my dad over, or not overheard, but my dad saw it. And like my dad walked over to him and he's like, if you ever look at my daughter again, I will restrain you. And so um, I just remember like, then I was like feeling guilty for that. And like, um, at that time I guilty, had like a, guilty that he looked at you guilty that my dad was using me to like, to I don't like know. provoke a reaction out of basically people. So he could engage and with this kid was like much. 12. It was, he was, he was a little kid. He wasn't, he wasn't like the gang members that they had because they did have gang members and he wasn't like that. He wasn't like a tough kid. He was, I don't know. I just remember feeling like sad for him and like not protective, but just like wanting to like run away. And, um, but I had already run away like multiple times before this at Agape and it never worked. So, um, I just remember thinking like as like 14, 15, thinking like we should all riot and like this place could be like done, but obviously like everyone being brainwashed, it would have never like, it would have never worked. But yeah, no, I don't feel like at, there was ever a time at Agape that I felt like this was really helping people necessarily. Like I, I still was brainwashed in the fact that like God and hell and all of this stuff, but it wasn't like, I don't know. It, it was just more, um, it was more of the stuff that happened at home. Like my dad would always pick me up and like throw me around and stuff like that. But like, that was like openly like happening there basically we weren't allowed to watch it they would yell like uh restraint and we were all supposed to like leave but um I just remember like them doing that and like a whole like swarm of boys just backing up and like all of the staff ladies having to leave and stuff like that so I don't know just something didn't feel right necessarily okay um and when you brought up the the thing of like okay there was a range like obviously this is a 12 year old kid and then you also have like gang members. And so like, what was the demographics of these schools? Cause it seems like, I know you mentioned one of your videos, like there was a girl at Circle of Hope that was like five years old. So like, was there 
any set age group? Was it just, and, and what were the reasons parents were sending their kids? Was it primarily like the majority were like hard crimes and like they, they, it's either that or juvie or like that kind of thing. Or was it like anybody for any reason? And we send them. We were what, what led to believe that all of them were gang members there. Um, looking back now and like talking to them after they got out, a lot of them were just sent there for like family issues. Like, um, like some of them had like mental issues that like families couldn't deal with. Some had, um, like they didn't get along with their families or like alcoholism, but a lot of it wasn't like, I do know they were gang members. Like, I do know that um, some of those gang members had like tattoos and stuff like that. Um, but a lot of them now I'm like, they were just innocent, not innocent, but you know, like innocent victims. A normal, a, t- a normal teen. <laughs> or a, a normal. No. Yeah. A lot of them didn't know about drugs and stuff until they left. And like, well, not until they left <laughs> um, until like being there because they were talking with their, um, with agape people. And that's how they learned about drugs. That's actually how I learned about drugs because it, my brother got sent to agape and like he would, when he, when he came home, he was like telling me all these things. And it was just like, I don't know. It was weird. It was, it's yeah. sad looking back on it. Like, right. Yeah. So, um, so you, your, your family's at agape for a little bit and then, um, end up going to circle of hope, which is also in Missouri, correct? Yeah. It's actually right. about, 13 miles um, from the town of Stockton where Agape is. Wow. So it's really close. Yeah. Um, So what, what prompted that move? And then, and then circle of hope, if I understand correctly, like your dad was like running, he wasn't just staff. Like that was his thing. Right. Okay. Oh, so he started it from scratch. He didn't take it from anybody or anything. He didn't take it from anybody. He started it from scratch. Um, well, when we were at the home in Florida the first time, they we originally moved because they wanted to start a home, but that didn't work out. Um, okay. So when we got to Agape, they were doing like a shift in um, not ownership, but like a shift in like leadership of staff. And um, my dad was saying they he didn't like it because it was too nice and they were changing, which was the same same excuse as to why we left Faith or Hope. Like too too easy on everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so it sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, well, like I said, like talking to boys now, I honestly don't think it's that. I think it's because the person who was taking over leadership, him and um, this guy uh, just didn't get along. Yeah, and He didn't have the control that he wanted. So he exactly, was moved to the next. Exactly. Because this guy, um, his, his name is Brian Clemenson. Um, he's now the owner of Agape, but if you Google Jurassic elbow, like you'll see, um, his, he, he has a nickname for his abuse. His, um, he would take his elbow and hit boys as hard as he can on the back of their necks. And, um, I have friends that were on the opposite hand of this abuse. And, um, so like, I think because of the extent my dad goes, cause my dad has the same kind of stories, uh, about like, I know, um, there's a story that my dad punched a kid in the gut and stuff like that. So like, it's like physical abuse with these two people. So I think that's why my dad decided to um, open an all girls home. And he said that he didn't want to compete with Agape. And so that's why he was going to do all girls. But Agape also has a girls part called, uh, well, at that point, it was refuge, but now it's called wings of faith. So 
I don't know why it was just girls other than um, after hearing stories. Um, I think it was because of his sick, his sick perversions. So. Right. Did you, and again, as much as you're comfortable sharing or not, but did you, did you sense any of that stuff at the time? Did you ever sense like, oh, it's weird that my dad does, you know, A, B, or C, or like, did he do things where you're like, that's really uncomfortable? Or was that too just like, it's just normal because that's what happened, you know? Well, growing up, um, at, even at Lake Hope, he had these girls that he always like favored more than me. He would give them the side hug and like kiss them on the head. And like, I never got that. I never got that from my dad. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just always weird to me. And I thought he was trying to replace my sister because my sister did pass away. And um, mm -hmm. growing up and like hearing all the stories from the girls that have left Circle of Hope, it just all started clicking that it wasn't my sister, him trying to replace my sister. It was, and after talking to Lucinda, I was like, oh, so he, it, it was something more sinister than that. It, it was yeah. gross, so. Yeah. Um, so. So you're at Circle of Hope, he opens the school. Um, you know, obviously that's kind of where, I mean, at that point you're 15, 16? I'm um, 15. Um, so, and you're there for about two years? You left at about 16 or 17, right? 17, I, I believe? I left at 17, yeah. Okay, um, okay. I think it was like January or like December. Like my birthday's right in February. So like it wasn't like too far before my 18th birthday. But um, yeah, I was there for two and a half years probably. In Missouri, is 17 legal where you can leave? Or is it 18 where you're it an adult? It is 17. Okay, I was gonna say. Okay, so um, obviously that's the time where, you know, you're closest to being an adult and like you're you're actually, you know, you're already going through the normal team like where you question everything and think through everything. And so, um, you know, obviously kind of crescendos with you like, I mean, secretly recording what's happening is like, I was watching like, oh, she has guts to do that. Like I'd be, I'd be out, I'd either be out of there or just be terrified of like, what's going to happen if I get caught doing this. So um, what, what was the kind of got you in that full on, like, oh, I'm going to show what's going on here. Like, was that pretty instantly once the home started or was it just like a few months in, you started seeing a lot of this stuff ramp up or. I actually didn't get that video. Um, an ex Agape student got that video. Um, oh, I thought you would. Okay. I thought that was from you. Okay. No, he, um, I stopped talking to him because he was like, uh, uh, my dad, he let, he loved my dad. And then, um, so my dad messaged him oh, back in like February sometime saying, Hey, you need to come visit me. And so he went to go visit my dad and he like witnessed my dad do a lot of these things. Like he witnessed my dad, um, make a girl chug like so much water. He's like, that's like poisonous. And, um, and so he like just decided to like use his phone to get a video um, but then he messaged me on Facebook cause I guess he got a different Facebook and he's like, Hey, I need to talk to you. And I didn't get that until like three days after. And so I was like, what do you need to talk to me about? And he's like, your dad. And I was like, is he dead? And he's like, no, he's like, I need to talk to you. I was like, okay. So, um, he gave me his number and I called him and he tells me about it. And I was like, so before he like describes the video he just tells me that my dad's yelling at the girls to knock it out knock a girl another girl out before he described the video i was like so let me guess my mom's standing there 
or sitting there with like a smile on her face, like nothing else is going on. And he's like, yeah, exactly. And I was like, yeah, cause I've been there. I've been in that situation so many times. And so, um, I asked him if he would send me the video. And so he did. And that's, that's how I got the video. Um, when I was there, um, that was, I was kicked out in 2009. And so when I was there, the only phone I had was like a little phone that I could text on. Um, and I had, I had reached out to people about it, but, um, it was just to get help to get out of that situation. And, um, basically I was kicked out because there was that five-year-old girl that was there. She, um, my dad did a devotions and within the IFB religion, some households believe that if you wear pants, you're going to hell. And so her mom wears pants and she was afraid that her mom was going to hell. And I just outright said, it brought me to tears, but I, I, I was like, no, your mom's not going to hell. If your mom's going to hell, then my dad's mom's in hell. My sister's in hell and my dad's sister's in hell. Um, because they all wore pants and they, they all passed away. Um, that got back to my parents and that's when they like decided that because I have been rebelling against this my whole life. Um, before, when I ran away, they went through my room and they found like all the CDs I had, um, stolen from, um, Dollar General and stuff like that, all the posters I had. Um, and so like, they knew that I wasn't like the good Christian woman <laughs> that you're supposed to be. And so, um, that was just the last straw. And so they had taken my phone and started going through it and found out that I was already planning on leaving. And so they were like, well, you're already uh, planning on leaving. So we're just going to kick you out. We just got to find you a place to go to anyways. And so I don't remember how long it was, but I wasn't allowed to leave the table outside my dad's office. And then my mom would have to walk me home. <laughs> and so I wasn't allowed to leave like my parents side basically. Um, and so um, during this time, my mom's aunt passed away or was, got really sick. She got, um, cancer and, um, me and her were kind of close. And so my mom was going to go visit her on her deathbed. And I asked if I could go and they said, no, we're taking Julian, which is my younger brother who never really met her. And that was just another like punishment. <laughs> um, well on their way home, she ended up passing away. And so my grandma said she was going to come and my parents are like, good, can you take her? So, um, we go to the funeral and my parents make me sit in my grandma's car. I wasn't even allowed to attend the funeral. And, um, basically from there, we just went home to my grandma's house, which was always the only place I ever felt safe growing up. So, so what, so, okay. So, I mean, you have the, the girl's home, you have agape and then circle of hope. And, um, you know, did you, did you notice, was that, the, was that the first time that he was completely in control of one of these homes? I was going to say he was the principal at, um, hope. And then he was like the Dean of staff at Agape. So he had some authority there, but like, this was the first time he was ever in like control of everything. So, um, can you, I mean, we've, I've talked to people from Hope to the house from, um, from, uh, in Pace, Florida. I'm trying to remember the name of the school now, new beginnings. Um, I've talked to different people. So can you just walk me through what a day in the life of a, quote unquote, student at um, Circle of Hope looked like? Like what, what was the day to day there? Um, it depends on the year because when they first opened up, it was honestly just hard labor. We were cleaning, the guy who owned the house was a major hoarder and there were like, he, 
so much so like that he had bags of money he had bags of like jewelry that were was like expensive jewelry he had magazines that were old magazines he had nasty trash bags in there meat in the freezer that was in there for like whoever knows how long and so like we had to clean and like make it livable in there um so for the first i would say i would say a year we were just cleaning it was very rare that we did schoolwork very rare um once a parent started complaining about that and like they were like contemplating suing or they were going through the process of suing my parents that's when they started implementing um more school and so like myself i would have to wake up at 4 30 in the morning and start breakfast and then um the girls would be getting up around the or the higher up shirts would be getting up around the same time and then they would be getting ready um taking their shower whatever they need to do and then they would be getting the girls up to go outside and work um yeah. my parents would wake up around like 5 36 and then um Honestly, I don't know what they would do. My dad would go into his office. He did have TV, so he would watch the news. Um, okay. And then he would sit at, sit at his desk and read his Bible. Um, the girls would still be, like, outside working, and then um, they would break off into, like, school crew and then, like, work crew. So then um, at this time, I would have to go back into the school office and grade all the tests and, like, do, like, the girls like answer like their questions and stuff and um there was um a work crew happening so like they're like girls would still be outside doing like horses and like random things because like like i said in the beginning the prop at all livable and so like we were still working it up like cleaning out different pens that had like right the barn was also piled full of junk, the um, other house. So like we were still doing like a lot of work. Um, and then we would like clean up for lunch um, and then go back to school. And then the other girls would go back out to work. And then we would do dinner around, I would say, I think I had to have it on the table by six. I was never on time because I had so much I had to do. I was never on time. Um, so the girls, I think we were going to bed by like nine, eight thirty, nine at that time. Mm -hmm. But that was basically the routine. Um, what was the schooling? Was it like paces or was yeah, it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. The accelerated Christian education. Control and um, whatever you want to call it, this underlying level of manipulation and control and power that he still seems to have and right. that the church still seems to promote and, you know, again, I don't want to accuse him of anything because, like I said, I appreciate the work that he's done. But I also think he needs to examine what allows this to happen over and over again. You see the you see the symptoms of the disease, but what is the disease? You know, and I think at the end of the day, it is that man-centric, pastor-centric yes. church structure. Yeah, prideful. It's a prideful structure. And it did, I did learn that people many people will sell their souls in order to belong to something. Mm -hmm. They absolutely will not buck a trend. Um, and they don't, they want to be comfortable. Most people are selfish and we find that religious people are selfish and Christ, I mean, in Christ's ministry, I, I don't think he ever rebuked a prostitute. I, he, he rebuked 
religious people. So there is a lot of selfishness in religious cultures, there a lot of pride, uh, pride of life. Um, so yeah, I, I would be interested to see what Stacey Shiflett says, but you know, he's coming out of that culture. He's a product of that culture. Um, like fourth, fourth generation or third generation. Is he? he well, said. yeah. No. Yeah. That's a, uh, um, so you, you do have to like hope for the grace of God to reach somebody. But, it, but again, there's no excuse for it. The, the style of church government in fundamentalism is absolutely wrong and contrary to scripture, period. And it's resulted in a lot of suffering of weak people. People who do not have a voice get crushed in fundamentalism. Fundamentalism, I concluded, was about power and sex. That, I mean, that's my belief, that that's really what it's about. Right. Yeah. And um, sometimes the, more often than not, power and sex are intertwined. Um, yes, when you see these sure, cases. Right. Yeah. Um, and then financial side, like obviously guys like Jack Hiles, who um, honestly, I try not to say as much because people say, well, you're only picking on Hiles, but Hiles kind of started the trend of a lot of this stuff. When you have a birthday, you, you kind of give the smaller gifts first, but you have to have some big prize to give. And when it's a special birthday, like a 70th, you want to do something real special. Preacher, we've often heard how you have used the United Airlines red carpet room and how you like to use that. And in fact, you've taken a few of us there on different occasions and showed us how much you like it. We have a little space in the college here that's not being used, what we think, in the appropriate way. The beautiful little porch out the end of the administrative hallway and the lounge that the faculty and staff use. We thought if we raised a little money, we could make that into a beautiful Jack Hiles red carpet room. Brother Clyde, if you'd come in this time, please. We had to raise a little money for this project. And uh, the college here, the student body sitting before you here, the staff and faculty administrators and a few friends around the country have pooled their resources in the last few days have raised $70,000 for your 70th birthday. <laughs> Students, those are three armed guards. Don't you try to touch that money. Uh, we have a wheelbarrow full of cash for you. Bring it right on up here. That is $70,000 of real cash. Yeah, you do see these kind of patterns, and, and you started calling those out. Um, I'm curious, so you've written a couple books about the IFB in general. So you've written, obviously, the, a compendium of Baptist preachers who were involved in abuse, and over a very, the amount of names over a very short period of time um, is pretty startling. And I can imagine if we had the internet back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, how many more cases we'd be able to track down. Right. Um, yeah. And I did track a few that went back into the 70s, just a few. Um, but yeah, I'm sure there's far. Oh, if you just went to First Baptist Church of Ammon, Indiana, you'd uh, probably dig up dozens. Oh, I'm sure. You're just following their graduates. If you just start digging through the alumni. Yeah. Well, and that's, yeah. And I mean, Chicago Magazine took my information on that and did an article showing just from Hiles Anderson graduates how many cases there were. So yeah, yeah. I worked with them on, on an article right after Jack Scott uh, was arrested. They did an article on that and used my information. So you wrote that book and then you also wrote schizophrenic Christianity, which I'm working through right now. Um, and I'm, 
I'm curious, what was the motivation behind that book um, versus obviously like just getting the information out there? You started writing more about the history of the movement. Can you talk about what prompted that book specifically? And yeah, kind Schizophrenic of... Christianity is the first book I wrote on. Oh, okay. on um, yeah, actually, Big Book of Bad Baptist Preachers is the most recent. Got it. Um, after I had started documenting this and I realized this is not, you know, a dozen cases or two dozen cases. When I started to realize this is part of this culture, this is, this is a terrible, evil counterfeit of Christianity. I began right. to realize this. And again, there are some really good people in fundamentalism. Not everybody in fundamentalism is awful. Um, but the system itself is still very bad. So I decided what I needed to do was explain it. And I needed to provide case evidence, but mostly I wanted to put out a book that would that would protect people. That people could say, now I get it. This is what I have to do to keep my child safe. So I went all the way back to the beginning. And when you're looking at, at this particular book, this is the second edition. The first edition may not have had, I can't remember. I don't think it had as much history in it. But what I had to do first was say, okay, if you're thinking of Pentecostals, Church of God, Assembly of God, anybody, any any church where the guys wear white shirts and dark ties and they have short hair and you're thinking that's a fundamentalist, I needed to say at the beginning of the book, that's not a fundamentalist, that, you know, a guy who's a Jehovah's Witness is not a fundamentalist. He will not call himself a fundamentalist and a fundamentalist will not call him a fundamentalist. So in, I tried to define terms to so that readers would understand that when I use the term fundamentalist, I am actually using it in a theological sense, not a media-driven sense, because right. the media will call anybody waving a Bible a fundamentalist. Yeah. So um, I wanted to do that. I wanted to show, you know, fundamentalists really don't like history. A sociologist, James Hall, he wrote a book called Spirit and Flesh, where he lived among a fundamentalist congregation, and it mm. was a really was a Jerry Falwell type fundamentalist congregation. Right. Um, for him, it actually opened his eyes to the presence of God. I mean, but he did record a lot of the, you know, the troubling things that he saw right. in them. But oh dear, I've lost my thread. You, you were talking um, about um, fundamentalists have a dislike for history. Oh yeah, and he said that in fundamentalism they have instant history. So mm -hmm. like when you go to First Baptist Church of Hammond when Jack Hiles was alive. They would they would have like these big multimedia spectaculars, and you'd see George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Jack Hiles, like like effortlessly plugging these total non-entities into history as though your like your church is a big part of the historical timeline mm. of the nation or of Christianity. So fundamentalists don't want to hear about the centuries and centuries of other great men who, who stood up to things, especially, oh my goodness, if they're not Baptist. And so right. um, I wanted them, therefore, to give a history, to give a brief, accurate history, to give some reality to this is what fundamentalism actually is. It's not a worldwide, ever since the dawn of time, there, you know, I wanted to show that it's a product of the 20th century. It has one foot firmly planted in atheism. One foot of mm. fundamentalism is planted in social Darwinism uh, and B.F. Skinner's um, conditioning theories. So that was my next book. But anyway, but 
So I wanted to do that and then launch into an explanation of how fundamentalist churches work and then how child molesters work. But yeah, fundamentalism appeals to sociopaths because fundamentalism is about power and sociopaths gravitate to power. That's interesting. So you say that because I actually had um, Dr. Kelly Palfi who wrote, um, she wrote why men don't report uh, or uh, men too, uh, why men don't report sexual abuse. And she worked oh. with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for several years, arresting child molesters, um, cracking down on that stuff. And then she now is a therapist who works with men who've experienced sexual abuse and have struggled to come forward because it's a huge epidemic of, men oh. that, you know, experience when abuse worked- and I'm sorry, I beg your pardon. No, when fine. I worked with the victims of Charles Shiflett, oh my goodness, the, the guys who he had, some he had beaten, a couple he had sodomized when they were school children. Honest, they had physical ailments related to it. You, you, you look at these people and you think this person will never, never, they can be happy. Um, one, you know, one of them was married and had children. He was a good dad, but you look at him and you just think he's never going to be free of this. He's never never going to and and it's just it's heartbreaking what yes what this does to men is, is a field that has not been examined because men will not come forward and say right. it has happened because of the toxic masculinity yes. culture and right. um, but she, but she talks about that she said you know some of the people that they arrested you know there's people who plant themselves there's sociopaths who plant themselves into positions for the sole purpose of acquiring yes. victims and so right. what that yeah what, Yeah, yeah, and so that conversation really plugged into my mind. The it made sense that there would be so many abusers who go into the pastoral ministry because they see an opportunity Mm -hmm. to abuse. And this was confirmed with the situation in Faith Baptist of Wildemar. Speaking with one of the victims from there, she told me that, uh, and it was actually one of the main pieces of evidence that put this person in jail. But she told me that he called and said, you know, the pastor's not going to do anything. Right. And so he used knowledge knowing he probably became a youth pastor knowing that that was the end goal. Right. Do, That's the culture. He can know. get away with it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yes. And again, in fundamentalism, women are looked at, I hate to use this dated term, but simply sex objects. Women right. are not valued for their opinion. They're valued because they can cook in the kitchen when we're having church picnics and they're valued for sex and that's it. Right. And so why not abuse them? You know, it's, it's right. like kicking a puppy. Well, it's not nice, but you know, you were mad, you felt like doing it. So, and right. so, yeah, women are so demeaned in fundamentalism. Um, but yeah, the, the, to be a fundamentalist pastor, all you have to have is a dark suit with a white shirt and a dark tie King James Bible, and you have to learn the rhetoric of how to preach mm. in the pulpit. But you don't even need a good knowledge of the Bible. If you basically are a good showman, a pulpiteer, you can hang up a shingle. There's absolutely no professional credential you have to have to be an IFB pastor. Yeah. You just start being one. As, and, as long and, as you're funny or you can be a yeah. good speaker or you can, yeah. you know, and that's where you look at a guy like Jack Hiles. Like mm-hmm. Jack Hiles is a charismatic speaker. Yes, you know, yes, when very I, engaging. Yeah. When I watch clips of Jack, and I've watched, uh, I've watched a significant amount of Jack Hiles preaching because I'm fascinated that a man, he was not a, he did not come across deeply educated. He did not no. come across, you know, he, he is not a theologian by any stretch. No. But no, not at all. when I sit there watching clips of Jack Hiles preaching, 
I understand the appeal. And not not that I agree with what he's saying, obviously. Like I've played clips of his preaching in you know the podcast, but I can see how someone who's already bought into the baseline theology that he's promoting or the baseline worldview he's promoting could sit under him for years and think that he's the best gift of God of all time because he's a super engaging persona. He's an amazing speaker. The way that he grabs you as an audience, you know, Um, and same with a lot of these guys. I, I see it, you know, with any of the, any of the pastors, I just think of like growing up, like when you'd see someone at an event speak, it was always incredibly charismatic, incredibly likable and watchable and funny. But when you start looking back at like, what did I actually learn? <laughs> it's, it's right, very, yeah. yeah, it's very small. So, um, yeah, I think, I think the, the breakdown I'm seeing of fundamentalist pastors tends to be a good guy who learned really bad philosophy and theology from one of the colleges or someone who recognizes the potential for abuse and enjoys the opportunity to jump in right. and do that. Right. So it, it, it can be either. And the first type, he either has to confront the reality. Eventually, if he's a good guy, he's going to see the reality and he either sells out and stays a fundamentalist preacher or, or he leaves, you know, he leaves right. it. Right. And then which everybody I'm, says he's gay. So <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is funny, like that you say that. I, I see, I see so many people. So yeah, the people that I've seen who in the IFB were the good guys, the guys that I would feel comfortable with, talk to, still have connection to. None of them are connected with that movement now. It was a very right. quick well, ejection from the movement. Um, I think a lot of them that do stay is because they're good guys. They think there's a chance to steer the ship around. They think there's a chance to you know, maybe reform. I see a lot of guys talk about reforming the movement, taking it. Josh Tice a few years ago was really pushing that. I know he's no longer IFB, but he was really pushing. Let's, let's go to the good things and leave the bad things. But, you know, we've talked a little about a little bit already, but what do you think about that? What do you think about that mindset? I mean, obviously you started writing with the mindset of like, Oh, I'll change things. It's that optimistic. Right. And that's yeah. how I initially, I was like, Oh, I'll tell people what's going on. They don't know. That's why it's still there. They just don't know. I'm the first one to know, but you right. very quickly yeah. find yeah. out that, Oh, everybody knows this. Everybody I'm, knows. The, I'm the <laughs> fool that found out last. Yeah. And that's now, a good way of putting right. it. Yeah, that's and, right. Yeah. And now I either have to jump out of this ship or I have to just keep growing. And well, I was already out of fundamentalism really. Um, when I started doing the documentation, I was, I was a very conservative evangelical and I still am conservative evangelical um, or I'm conservative Christian. Now I wouldn't call myself evangelical. Presbyterian, right? I was Presbyterian um, because now I have PTSD. I fall apart whenever I walk into a church. If I, if I were anything, I would be conservative Anglican. I'm sort of leaning back towards liturgy. Um, but I can't walk into a church without falling apart. So I, no. I don't, I, I, I just, I, I can't do it. BTSD is too severe. So, right. um, but. And if I may, what? if I may ask, yep. is that, is that due to the research that you did? Yes. Yeah, okay. definitely. So yeah. I'm curious. And I'm, I'm asking that because I'm noticing with myself, um, you know, this has been an eye opening year and I'm, I'm sorry to talk. I don't want to, I don't want to take That's your time. Right. Just me talking, but. Um, I'm always interested when I get on these calls because part of it is like 
I'm selfish. I want to have these conversations too. And reading your stuff, I've wanted to talk to you. Um, you know, my, um, you know, I, the more that I research, the more I feel similar in the way of it makes it very hard for me to trust. Yeah. Well, okay. Let me, re- let me restart that. So my, um, and I, I haven't really talked about this a ton on the show. Um, and I, it's funny when things actually come up, but my really, I had a very strong relationship with my youth pastor. I was telling you that off, off mic. And when I found out that he knew about the abuse case before me, and when I found out that his response to that was to call me bitter, when we had a, I would say a father son relationship. And I don't mind saying that on the show. I I guess I'll say that had a very close relationship. And the fact that that was the situation that fractured the relationship was me speaking out was very impactful on me. And I'm noticing, um, I actually just talked to a therapist, uh, that I had on the show about this. I kind of stole a free therapy session after. Um, but I just said, you know, I have a hard time identifying issues with 30 to 40 year old men, like people that are, you know, people that are like 10 to 20 years older than me. I'm totally blind to when something bad is about to happen. And I keep finding myself in relationships that go wrong with like mentor figures. And, you know, basically we talked and she said, well, you, you have a disconnection in your brain because your mind's saying, you know, just try it again, try to make that connection work again with someone else, someone right, else, yeah. else. And it's turning off all of your warning signs. Um, so that's one element that makes it very hard for me when I walk into a church and I have a 30 to 40 year old or 50 year old or even any age pastor come up to me. I'm looking for ulterior motives when I walk in, which is a good thing because it protects, especially now that I have a daughter and things like that. It's protection. But there's also things like, uh, you know, I'm never going to put my daughter in a nursery. I'm never going to, you know, don't ever do that. Right. And there's all these things that are expected by American churches, evangelical IFB. There's things that are just a given. Like you go to church, you drop your kids off in kids care, you go sit in the service and I know too much to be comfortable with that. And, right. you know, the idea, like we're seeing a lot of insanity in, tr- in evangelicalism as a whole right now. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's very Repulsive. hard for me to feel comfortable as a Christian in a church. Um, well, that was why I started, I worked with a guy who was conservative Angl- Anglican. And because I grew up Catholic, I was Catholic mm-hmm. until I was 13 or 14. And I'm definitely not Catholic. Like I, you know, I, I'm Protestant, but I was really harsh against liturgy, you know, liturgical mm-hmm. service until I learned that in the Anglican church, they actually have a goal of going through the Bible yearly in readings that actually, if you're attending services, you are getting exposure to the scripture and valuable teaching that is not focused on newspaper headlines. But the other thing about liturgical churches is um, they might not have a church nursery. They might, you know, if they're not, it's It's evangelical churches that split and compartmentalize other churches. I don't know. I mean, I don't have children, Eric, so I don't know the answer to that, but I would say, this is a good time to start looking at, you yeah. know, other conservative Protestant churches that are not built on the evangelical model. Yeah, no, we, um, we actually spent, um, and I'm, <laughs> we never talk about theology really deeply heavily on the show cause it's not really the purpose, but, um, why not? There's a, there's times here and there for everything, but, um, you know, we leaned very heavily toward, you know, Presbyterianism for a while and, oh, okay. and, um, I was, I'm still, 
I can, I can, I'm really down the middle of the line. I see both sides of the baptism argument and I, I very, I could be persuaded either way. Like when I'm reading it, I see the biblical argument for both the Baptist view of baptism right. and the, you know, Presbyterian view. And I understand how they come to their conclusion. I just don't have a strong enough sway either way to like fully dive into, like if I was doing a Presbyterian church, I'd have to baptize my daughter. I'd have to, you know, there's things that I would have to do that. I just want to make sure that I'm on the same page. So that's, I you. you know, but that's definitely what I do appreciate about the Presbyterian. And, you know, I'm huge fan of like RC Sproul. I watched a lot of his stuff. Like, I, you know, I really appreciate the idea of being a family attending church and the family is the church inside the church, not someone else raises your child for you and, and that right. kind of element. So yeah. anyway, all that to say, like, I, I was just curious because that's, I'm noticing more and more, I just feel that doom gloom feeling in my stomach when I walk into a church or when I go into a parking lot of a church, even if it's, I know it's a good church from all accounts or it's just the bubble bursts and you are aware that something can happen. Um, well, I think you may have expectations that are higher than reality is going right. to afford you. Um, mm. And when I was younger, because I grew up in such a very dysfunctional family, I always wanted somebody to mother me. I always wanted a mother um, and went through a lot of heartbreak with women who got some type of like ego boost out yeah. of that. And I tried to be what they wanted me to be, but I could only ever be myself which is, you know, I am an unusual person. And so um, eventually I had to learn that, one, I have to love them and I have to expect from myself to love this person Mm. regardless of how this person is. Like I have to love this person and not just go needing their mentoring. I have to be responsible to love them. And then to just try to be open. I'll tell you, Eric, I have have such good friends who are Hindu and Buddhist um, and Methodist. And, and I don't believe, I may not believe in other person's religion or denominational persuasion, but I'll, I'll tell you in being open to other people, I have seen a lot of goodness in other people that has in some ways shaped my theology Um but I don't expect now to know the end of every relationship or the end of every situation. Mm-hmm. There is a certain wisdom in just taking it as it comes. Right. Um, I will tell you this. I, I believe that nobody is saved except by the shed blood of Christ. But I have learned after seeing such deep evil and depravity in the church and moments of such brilliant light and compassion outside of it, that I really have decided just to leave that in the hands of Christ, that that is really in his hands. But, right. you know, sadly, so you can be mentored by somebody who is not in a church. Sure. Right. Um, but also you do have to realize needy people go to churches, needy people. Right. And then as soon as we all get in church, we all polish ourselves up so we don't look needy. And yeah. Needy people go to churches. And that is the way it's supposed to be. You yeah. just have to remember that when you walk in. Right. That's awesome. So, um, I mean, we've covered a little bit about the, you know, the foundation of abuse. We've talked about kind of, you know, the, I guess the uh, systemic nature, the the epidemic of abuse in IFB. I'm curious, I know you've been out for a while now and you're now, you're still keeping tabs a little bit. You're still, you're still following up. You're in groups like my group. You're, you know, you're keeping an eye on what's going on. 
I'm curious what your perspective is. Having done all of this research, what do you think the next couple of years holds for the fundamentalist movement? Because there is a lot of shift happening right now. There's guys like Josh Tice who are really pushing for a, a new independent Baptist that's, you know, doing away with some of the more negative things. And, you know, it's the theology is somewhat similar, but, you know, they're changing things up. You've got guys like Steven Anderson doing the new IFB, which is like a more hardcore, oh, yeah. you know, more, Crazy you know, Anderson, yeah, which, yeah. which is barely worth even acknowledging because they're, they are a drop in the bucket. Um, but I'm curious, what do you see for the next couple of years? I have people saying like, don't focus on a dying movement, but it's still by my calculation, there's still about, um, and by the reports that I'm reading, it still seems that there's about 3 million IFB people yeah, there's around. A lot of, we will always have fundamentalism. We will always, there will always be, there always has been. So what we will you, always, go ahead. Oh, sorry. What, I was going to say, what do you think is the next stage of that? Because it's not going to be, I, I I do see places like First Baptist of Hammond are not going to hit the same heights that they hit in the current cultural yeah, climate. Yeah, yeah. But what do you think is the next stage of that? Is it the Steven Anderson types that kind of start growing up? Is it the, you know, just another denomination that's going to kind of start, absorbing that what do you think well is the i mean there? we do have denominations that do absorb from fundamentalism the presbyterian what is it the presbyterian denomination that is still conservative they tend to take uh, the pca people, yeah they i mean that was what i attended for many years um they tend to absorb people like you who are pretty well educated and and professional and you get you have enough in the IFB, so you go over because PCA is open on baptism. You can be baptized as long as your conscience is satisfied. They're you know they're cool with it. Um, I think the 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 fundamentalism and IFB will become more radical, and I think Steve Anderson is a pointer to that. Mm. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more blending of it with white supremacy. I think we'll we'll see that become much more an arm of fun. You know, I think. Not all fundamentalists, but I think there will that will develop that that will become <clears throat> part of white supremacy. I think that the Bob Jones types, like Liberty, will be moving more towards modern evangelicalism. That they're going to try to lose the fundamentalist title. And BJU right now kind of has shed that as much yeah. as they can without well, they, outright. They just hired on a masters, a former masters university. Um, staffer to to head okay. up Bob Jones University, so they're definitely leaning more toward the reformed, somewhat more you know quote unquote liberal kind of college. Model. Right, what they used to call liberal. Yeah, they yeah. yeah. So they'll move that way. Pensacola will probably move more towards Hiles Anderson with you know their really? hard. Oh yeah, I think so. It doesn't matter how much money they have and how nice their campus looks. They're kooks. So you know you just can't hmm. the whole Ruckman thing, the KJV thing. That will really be the dividing line. Fundamentalists who are in the Bob Jones or Jerry Falwell model, who take a more educated view of scripture, will move towards evangelicalism. The ones that are KJV only, I believe, will go more towards radical right. They will get more radicalized oh. and become more radical right. Um, it, it's... But no, I don't think we'll ever stop having fundamentalists. We're, we're always going to have, there are always going to be people who desperately need somebody to tell them what to do. And sadly, that, <laughs> that I mean, it is the requirement of the church to take care of these people, to care for them, to protect them. But, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, there are people, it, sometimes it's an intelligence thing. They're, they really are not intellectually able to cope with the times that they are in. But sometimes it's, 
I don't know what you would call it, their spirit or their emotional growth, they can't cope independently. They have to be in a supportive situation. And that is part of the duty of the church. And because sadly, evangelicalism doesn't want to deal with weak, troubled, or even deformed people, they they fall down a few rungs into fundamentalism where they do find a niche and then and they just sit there and believe everything they're told. I mean, that is sad. Um, but that's that there is a good percentage of humanity that is that way. Right. And then there are people who profit from fundamentalism. They may not be child molesters, but they do well business wise. They're going to be and they get well, votes. So, yeah, yeah, there's that, too. Yeah. You look at um, I mean, again, I'm being careful. How I say this because I don't want to make an accusation that can't be backed up. But I see a very troubling correlation with, you know, especially with Trump. Um, I believe oh. it was under Trump. Well, yeah, we can talk about Trump, I'm sure, all day. But, but um, you know, a lot of the laws changing about the ability to endorse candidates from the pulpit, uh, that changing yes. was a big yeah. step. Um, and then you see situations like what's most concerning to me, and I, I and I'm seeing it happen now, is I see organizations like Awake America. I believe this is the most exciting time to be a Christian that's ever existed in the history of America. And I want to tell you, God is moving on our nation's capital. Among all the division and the hatred and the spite that you see, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit has come in because men of God and women of God are walking up there by the power of God and reaching our nation's servants. I'm watching people get saved. We're watching people cry and ask for prayer. We're watching as God undertakes to do what only God can do. Men of prayer up there asking God to do the miraculous. I see organizations like, um, you know, all of these little religious coalitions to right, go yeah. go to capital, the Capitol, go to Washington, D.C., and manipulate the the course of the country through their it, it's kind of a new version of Falwell's you know yeah it is you know right, yeah. what yeah, Falwell a, established with there, the moral yeah. you know the moral majority yeah. um, you're seeing this happen again through I mean I don't think there has organized so as Falwell was so I think they'll struggle with Awake America and things but I see that happening and then I see even in local governments. Um, it's just not a healthy relationship, especially when you're talking about abuse, when you're talking about, you know, situations of scandal to have a very close relationship where a mayor knows that he's going to get his position reelected if he does well by the church. Right. It's a super dangerous spot to be. Um, I see that happening. Um, I, I don't know if this could be considered, uh, slanderous, but I'll, I won't name the church, but, well, you know, yeah, I won't name the church just because I this is kind of fringe because it's partly my theory, um, and I can talk off mic about it. But there's a large church. You probably know who it is. There's a large church. Um, they've they had a major murder case connected to the church um, back in a couple years ago, and the case kind of dis it it was a huge thing, and it just kind of disappeared. There's no information on it past that. Um, they had issued a statement. They retracted the statement. They put another statement back out. Was um, this where the young man was shot at the stoplight? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I, d- I don't want to say the name just because I think that's there. I don't have evidence of this being the case, but 
it is weird to me that that specific church has such a strong connection to their mayor. The mayor is heavily involved in the church. Like he's involved at the church plays. He comes and speaks. He speaks at church events. Oh, okay. There, it, it seems to me that there is a, I scratch your back. You scratch my relationship. Oh yeah. That, yeah that, I mean, and, Chuck Shiflett and, and no relation to Stacy Shiflett, but right. he had a strong relationship with the police. The police would not arrest him. Right. Well, well, I mean, the for, kids went out right. and swore out the warrants and they served the warrants on him. I mean, right. that, cause you can well, do that in Virginia. Look at Indiana. Right. The oh, reason, my goodness. The reason Ron, that first Ron Baptist Williams. church of Hammond or Ron Williams or any of these organizations is because they bring in so much like look at first Baptist church of Hammond. Like, of course they're going to do days where they honor the police department. Of course they're going to do days because when it comes time to like something, there's an air of something being wrong. You want to make sure that you're on the right side of that equation. Yeah. yeah, In Indiana. I mean, we saw this just recently, our our mutual friend, Joy uh, Ryder just was speaking to extend the statute of limitations in Indiana. And it's amazing that there wasn't much of like a, yeah, we should definitely do this. It was like, okay, we'll take a look at it and uh, yeah, we can push it a few more years, but it's, you know, and you look at Hepzibah house with Ron Williams, right? Like how long they operated with no oversight. He was called out specifically by the Republican party in Indiana to honor him for having donated so much money to them. I mean, clearly, Ron Williams, no police force would respond to complaints about him. Nobody would go on there. And definitely, he owned that section of Indiana because he was just pouring so much money into the And, you know, Eric, none of us are called to be Americans. And patriotism, Mm, like the word loyalty, never shows up in the Bible. And fundamentalists try to work around it. We have one city the city of God. We have one place where we belong with God. We America is great. I'm glad I'm in America, but I know full well America is going to pass away. I can't stop yeah. that. I mean, that's a testimony to God's grandeur that all nations pass away. We might be seeing it a little sooner than I thought I was going to see it, but um, to bring it back to schizophrenic Christianity and the work I did, I will say that when 9-11 happened, I did believe that if Christians didn't change their ways, that the Lord would visit us again with another great event, a great catastrophe. And and I have had a heavy heart all year wondering, you know, is 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 this it? Is this is this the great catastrophe I have feared? And I don't know. I, I pray for the oppressed and the suffering of the earth. Um we certainly have the president we deserve if we don't repent, but I mean, it's so clear to me. And this is what the one thing fundamentalism will not preach repentance and Christians, all of us, me included need to repent and, and seek what Christianity truly is. And that means divorcing it from Americana. We have to be Christians first, definitely. And being American, you know, way down. So anyway, I'm sorry, but go ahead with your line of questions. No, that's um, this one. one. (laughs) No, that's, I mean, I think we're on the same page on a lot of these issues and even the political side, like I've stayed somewhat away because, but it's inevitable. Like that stuff just, it's, it's taught and it's hard to avoid it when it's taught from the pulpit, you know? And um, it is. Yeah. And I was totally, totally one of the, you know, I mean, I was totally swept up in it 
what made me stop being a rampant conservative was documenting the abuse cases. Mm. As more time went by and I was continuing to document and I saw the suffering, I came to realize that my previous political mindset had separated me from people who suffer. Mm. And, and I eventually realized I need to I need to be voting on behalf of people less fortunate than I am. I need to be working on behalf of people less fortunate than I am. And so I, um, I stopped being a, a staunch political conservative. Right. Yeah. It was kind of a, I went on a similar journey again, or diving into some subjects I don't usually talk about on the show, but um, you know, I think it's important for context of just, you know, this is my journey. This is kind of what I've been on is, yeah, you know, I, yeah. you know, I, and there's people that I respect that disagree in, in some ways yeah. and that's fine. But, you know, I, you know, I've, it was before the, it was before the Kaepernick situation um, where I didn't realize how big an issue people would take with someone like Kaepernick taking a knee. For right. The National that surprised Anthem. me too. Yeah. Um, I, just because I had never seen anybody do it. And so, but I, I literally about a year before that happened, um, I had come to the point where I stopped saying the pledge of allegiance for, oh, um, and, oh um, and, um, I just lost 4,000 listeners, but, um, who, but, who wanted you to say it? I mean, who was asking you well, to say it? Well, I had grown up in, I had grown up in, um, fundamentalism and we did that every chapel service we said the pledge of allegiance we said okay. the pledge we okay. pledged to the christian flag pledged to the bible um all three of those things i think are wrong <laughs> um theologically but um i i just came to the point i talked to my wife i talked to my pastor at the time i've talked to a lot of people since then and i just said i don't see anywhere in scripture where i'm to pledge my allegiance to anything other than christ right um yeah. Good. and yeah. You know, so, it, and I didn't make a show of it. Like I didn't, right. I didn't, you know, sit down, like I still stood up, but I just wouldn't say it. And then, you know, but that was a position like I just kind of quietly came to in the Bible for me, I'm not going to say it. And once the Kaepernick thing happened, I found myself ha hearing Christians say like, you know, this is disgusting. Why would people support this? Blah, 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 blah. Like all this and I was like, I was sitting there, I was like, oh, what would they think of me if they knew for the last year, whenever <laughs> I'm at an event, I'm not saying the words because I don't, they don't coincide with my religion. Like, it's funny because I have a lot of positions and again, we don't have to get into all of these now, but like, I have a lot of positions that I think I don't, I have those positions because I'm a Christian where people would say that's part of being a Christian is having the opposite belief, <laughs> you know, like right, um, yeah. when I, when I say like, I'm very iffy on capital punishment or I'm, yeah, me too. Yeah. You know, I have a lot of reservations about capital punishment. Right. You know? Um, and now the rebuttal is always, what about these, uh, what about all the people you're reporting? What about the pedophiles and the, you know, and um, they try to swing in that way. And I'm just like, I, I have a very strong value of human life and I, I have that from my faith. And so I just, I appreciate you being open about like just the, of the political and the religious side, because it is what I, what I want people to take away from this episode, because, and I, I'd like to just say like what I hope happens. I don't hope everybody that listens to this podcast becomes a, you know, like I've been accused of becomes a liberal hater of Christianity. That's not at all my goal. And I'm actually, I think it would actually surprise some how much I 
how much I believe of Christianity, like what, how involved in Christianity that I am, how much I read regarding um, my Christian views. Um, I think it would actually startle some people, but I, um, you know, I also, I guess I just want people to think. And, and I, I, that sounds, I don't want that to sound demeaning or arrogant or, but something you're hitting at something I'm hitting at, I think a lot is you have to step back from your religious view or your political view or your worldview in general that you were raised on. And you have to go through a process. I, I called it um, just kicking out the, kicking at the floorboards of my faith. Like what are the things that stand up to biblical foundational, you know, my worldview and what things just fall apart. And so you kick pants on women. It falls apart really quick. Um, you know, kicking at church, no church accountability falls apart really quick. Um, on and on and on and on. And so, you know, I, what I'm encouraged by, by your work is that you, you've kept a steady head. I think you've kept focused on what you're doing. You've allowed yourself to be very honest about the facts without becoming what you've been accused of, which is bitter, angry, you know, or I would say maybe you're angry. I would say, yeah, I've gotten angry. angry at times, yeah. but, but not bitter, but not at God and right. not at Christ. Right. And, I think, in my opinion, Christianity today lacks several things. One, a commitment to suffer. Mm-hmm. And fundamentalism is, is sort of a version of the prosperity gospel. How often have we heard, do this, do this, and God will bless you. Do this, and this. Christ told us that we have to take up our cross mm-hmm. to follow him. And I think it was in documenting the cases and seeing what these kids suffered. And I was getting sicker and sicker, especially the last half of that 13 years um, and now, you know, I have PTSD. I have a whole, you know, bunch of health problems and I'm, I'm a fourth degree black belt retired. I was a super athlete, uh, super athlete in the sense that I was training two to four hours a day. I broke concrete with my hand. I knocked out a couple people. <laughs> so I put a guy in a hospital once by accident, that strong person who was so, um, sure of herself went away. Right. She's never coming back. And I had to learn, not only is this God's will for me, it's actually good because it does unite me to my people hmm. who are Christ's people, who are the people who suffered. Hmm. And Christians today have lost that, that there is a value in suffering. And we have to not only not run away from it, but if it's in the way of what we're trying to do out of charity or some sense of serving God, we've got to run to it and just accept suffering is going to be a part of this. And the other thing is the simple word charity, which I'm telling you, I'm really not a loving person and I'm not a humble person. I am a fighter. That was why I could take on the IFB. And I, even when I was doing it, I recognized I'm single, have no kids, have no family. I could see these guys trying to find that stuff out about me to hurt me. And I, because they wanted to hurt me through people who I had relationships with. Well, I lost all my, all my friends, you know, I kind of lost because they were all fundamentalists. And I could accept that and say, you know what, I'm just going to fight these guys. So I'm not like all that nice of a person, but I have learned Christ is patient with me. But my path has to be charity. Even if I'm if I'm only like that far up the path, that still has to be the path. Right. Charity, not power, but charity. And 
that is a very difficult thing, but that is to be crucified with Christ is Christianity. And, and until Christians or people who profess to be Christians recognize that we don't have a Christianity, we just have a counterfeit of Christianity. Mm. Yeah, so no. that's what I've concluded. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you there. And I, um, there was something you said that I wanted to circle back to. Um, but I, I just, I mean, I agree with everything you just said. I mean, that's, there was so much there that, that I connect with oh, and there's, you. you know, I, I've been on the same kind of journey and it, it, I do sometimes I'm, you know, I'm a different, I think we're actually probably opposite personality types based on your description. Like I'm, I'm incredibly empathetic. I'm, I would say in a lot of ways, if I was to use like a IFB term, I would say I have kind of a pastoral heart of how I deal with people of what they would say that is. Um, you know, I, I empathize with people. I take on a lot of the emotions of the people that I'm talking to and, you know, well, I, I shed a lot of tears over yeah. victims, but my, my, what I resorted to after I shed those tears was I'm going to go kick some fundamentalist pastor up his arse. Like, and again, I had to learn not to be that way. Yeah. So, and I hope I didn't just say a word that's going to get you in big trouble on the podcast. No, it's fine. Of all the things okay. that are going to get me in trouble from this podcast, it won't be that. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> but right. no, so, um, so just kind of wrapping up and I, I probably will definitely bring you on for a part two, because I think there's a lot oh, we can talk okay, about. Sure. Um, yeah. I'd love to even dive in if we could think about a little bit, like dive into some of the political uh, messaging within the IFB, oh, okay. maybe right. really get us into hot water. Um, yeah, but, get in trouble. yeah. But I, I know your books have been awesome. I'm still going through um, some of them, and um, I, I'm always reading stuff from your blog when I'm searching out stuff. So oh, I find myself there a lot. Useful. I'm glad. Uh, um, but can you just tell people where they can uh, find some more information, maybe some websites or where they can pick up your books just so they can oh, okay. well, do some research? Amazon, under my name, Jerry Massey, Schizophrenic Christianity is what I would recommend in terms of the abuse the big book of bad Baptist preachers is yeah, more for people. If you're wondering, is there really abuse? Probably that I wrote a book. I don't have a copy called bitter root. And that is the book that explores how fundamentalism actually has one foot firmly planted in atheism. And it, yeah. it looks at several fundamentalist doctrines and practices that have nothing to do with scripture and everything to do with the athe with atheistic social mores that were in practice like around the turn of the 20th century. So um, there's that. Then another book, Secret Radio by Grace Jovian, is if if you're wondering, what is Hiles Anderson? What was First Baptist of Hammond? It's a novel set there. It was actually the first book that I wrote that got me in really deep hot water with um, uh, IFB pastors. It's written by Grace Jovian. That was the pen name that I used. So Secret Radio by Grace Jovian, they're all on Amazon. Uh, Secret Radio is fiction, but it, it covers really Hiles Anderson in the 1990s when the major scandals broke. Okay. It's Grace that's looking at it. And the school is called Greater Independent Baptist College, part of Greater Independent Baptist Church. And I said it in Indianapolis, but if, if you know anything, you look at it, you're, you're going to know, you're even going to know who the people are. So if you're familiar at all with the history of Hiles Anderson, um, my webpage is, uh, it's at www.jerryhu.net, J-E-R-I-W-H-O, 
Uh, I know I don't really update it that much anymore, but there's a lot in there on the culture of fundamentalism and how to get out of fundamentalism. So I hope it's helpful to people. I've left it up in order to help it, you know, hopefully yeah. hoping it would be helpful to them. Yeah, no, I know I've definitely referenced it as I'm trying to find information. Blog on the way is, is yeah. what it's called, blog on the way, but jerryhoo.net. Perfect. Yeah. And you can actually find a link too if, um, if you're having trouble finding that or for whatever reason, if you go to the Preacher Boys website too, I know there's a lot of information oh, okay. around this. Um, if you go there um, to the abuser database, uh, there is a link out to that website oh, great. as okay, well. Great, so, yeah. so that way people can check it out. I'll put all that in the show notes. So people can connect. Um, and there's, like I said, there's tons we could talk about. Um, I feel like I've, uh, you know, gotten to talk to you one-sided yeah, getting to nice read to your you. book and been good to actually get to talk in person so um but yeah yes Sarah, we'll, thank you it's very nice to talk with you thank you thanks for thanks for you know being such a advocate of my my research thank you thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast if you appreciated the content on the show please leave a review on itunes and don't forget to connect with us on facebook instagram or twitter with the handle at preacher boys doc Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.